Welcome to More Life, the Reentry Podcast, a podcast about offender reentry, reform, and advocacy. And I'm your host, Vankivia Gardner. Thank you all for tuning in with us today. Today, I am so grateful for your attention, and I'm very excited about the topic we are going to be bringing you today. So for the next couple of weeks, we will be bringing you a mini series that is going to embark on an eye-opening journey into the world of women's correctional healthcare. As we have heard throughout this podcast and various episodes that we have had, incarceration presents unique challenges for everyone within the system. But for women, the experience can be particularly complex. Throughout this series, we will explore the healthcare journey of incarcerated women and discuss the barriers they encounter while incarcerated and post-release. On top of that, we will also discuss the impact of incarceration on their physical and mental well-being and the steps being taken to improve their access to quality care. So for our first episode in this mini-series, our focus will be lended to the introduction to women's correctional health care. Um, today in this episode, we will highlight the specific health care needs of incarcerated women, the, the challenges they encounter, and the broader context that surround their experiences. So joining us today are Caitlin Johnson, who we, we, I will be referring to as KJ, just so y'all know, and Kelly Johnson. And they are co-collaborators on the Unborn Pregnancy Prisoner Project. And they are both dedicated to advocating for the reproductive rights and well-being of incarcerated women. Um, just to give you a little bit more information about who they are, KJ graduated with a Master's of Arts in Interdisciplinary Studies with a concentration on peace and reconciliation, and they are committed to discovering alternative methods of community care and how to critically examine ways in which we practice community. Kelly, our other guest, is a mother of two children, and she currently serves as the development and grant coordinator of Kennebec. Um, but before we even get into our content, I really just want to thank both of you for coming on and just, you know, your willingness to share your expertise uh, and your experience as we talk about this. Thank you so much for having us. This is really a pleasure. Um, it's a conversation that's left out um, or looked over very often. So to be able to dedicate um, a couple of different weeks to, to speak about it is, is very exciting for us. Um, I'm KJ, everyone. It's super, super nice to be here. Uh, I am a child of an incarcerated parent. I My father grew up, or I grew up with my father incarcerated um, and so I come with a personal experience of how much it can impact child, like children and the childhood process. Um, and then during my studies of peace and reconciliation, I focus specifically on the role and the impact the correctional healthcare system has on communities and more specifically the role reproductive healthcare um, has. Oh, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So my name is Kelly Johnson. And I am a person who is formerly incarcerated. Um, while I was incarcerated, I spent my entire incarceration pregnant um, an additional four months. Um, I'm also a person in long-term recovery, and I'm currently a grant writer for Canopy Behavioral Health and the Maine Prisoner Reentry Network. I also work for the Maine Prisoner Reentry Network on a couple of contracted projects. Um, we do uh, breast and cervical screenings for women re-entering society from the Southern Maine Women's Re-Entry Center, and I run the re-entry group there as well. 
Thank you both for sharing. So as we see, both of them have very unique experiences and histories that make it very critical for us to indulge in the conversation that we're having today. And they're both continuing uh, their efforts to support and advocate for the rights of women and reproductive rights, especially within the carceral system. So I really just want, like I said, want to say thank you and that we are so grateful for your experience as well as your expertise. Um, to, so to start us off in our series, I think it's very important for us to just become grounded in the world of corrections for women and kind of provide like that overview of healthcare landscape within women's correctional facilities. Um, so I really wanted to just start with if you if you all could just talk to us a little bit about just women being involved in the criminal legal system in general and what does that look like? Yeah, so if we start off looking at statistics, I definitely want to begin with the fact that there really isn't enough. Um, there's a lot of data that can be pulled and put together to analyze a, a picture of what's happening. But in terms of continuous, comprehensive, reliable data um, directly from the source, it's not it's not available or it's not available often or it's not available in a comprehensive manner. Um, and so I think that's just really important to know um, because if we're looking to just do our own advocacy or activist work at our own local ground, sometimes finding that initial data um, or those initial narratives can be very hard because they're not being tracked and they're not being taken. Um, that being said, like I said, there are things we do know and there is a picture we can still paint regardless. So we do know that well, one, you know, the United States incarcerates more folk than anyone um, else in the world. And of that, we incarcerate um, the second most uh, women um, in the world. And our incarceration rate of women is exponentially growing and has been since the 1980s, um, just under the rate of about 3% per year. COVID did interfere with those numbers a little bit, um, allowing for a short time um, decrease. However, now that most of all COVID restrictions have been lifted, we're seeing rates return to pre-COVID numbers. Um, so like I said, I think this, the actual statistic is like 2.6% annual growth um, of women being incarcerated. Um, and I want to just quickly note here that there's a difference between arrest rates and incarceration. So when we're speaking about incarceration rates, these are women being being booked and being charged. Um, so that's quite a significant amount of people, um, especially in such a short amount of time. And it gets even more complicated when we look at individual populations and then different states. So we're seeing um, since post Roe, the overturn of Roe versus Wade, complications in data collections um, in states that have anti or um, uh, no abortion rights. So if like abortion is not accessible in those states, we're seeing um, some difficulties in clear numbers regarding, you know, maternal health, maternal death, um, infant mortality. The data consistency is, is much different than uh, states that do have um, accessible abortion rights. And so it's a very complicated kind of data pool but we are seeing overall a huge grow um, in women being incarcerated and 
it having something to do or end up having control over their reproductive rights. So it's a really important conversation um, to pay attention to and data to look for however you can find it and wherever it's available. So I'm gonna comment just on the lack of data. Um, you know, in my personal experience, I remember when I was booked at the Canabet County Jail, one of the first questions they asked me is, are you pregnant? And I said, no, I did not know I was pregnant. I actually took a pregnancy test three days before I went in and it read negative. Um, so I said no at first, but they asked the question. So if they're asking the question, then why is that data not available? That's, that's a question that they ask both in jails and in prisons. And for those that don't know the difference, jails are at a county level and prisons are at a state level. So I was in Kennebec County Jail for four months and then I was transferred to the prison for the remaining 10 months. So um, I was asked the question at both levels. Obviously I knew I was pregnant when I went to prison, but then they forgot I was pregnant. So I still remained in the pods where I should not have been um for two weeks when I first got there I didn't have clothes for four days I remained in the same green jumpsuit um it it's amazing to me at how mixed up they can get and this is Maine you know like we are one of 13 states that have been striving towards gender neutralization and it's crazy to me that even some can fall through the gap gaps here. Like it, it really is. Yeah. I think that's one thing for sure that we can highlight um, is that there is a lack of uh, information, um, even though the information is being obtained. Um, and <laughs> how are we, how are we missing that? But also I think some of the central things here too, kind of at this beginning is that, there has been a profound change in the involvement of women in the criminal justice system. Um, and I think for the audience, um, some of them may not understand why uh, why that is. And I um, so one of the things I'd like to add is some of those reasons include the fact of this, uh, this more expansive law enforcement um, that we're seeing. Um, we're seeing stiffer drug sentencing policies and laws. And then a lot of times when women are released from prison, the barriers that they encounter are so unique to them that they're not being addressed. So that's further contributing to their involvement in the system. Um, and that's why we're starting to see kind of like this exponential growth of what KJ was talking about before. And Kelly is talking about the experiences of when people get into the system and kind of what happens to them and uh, where this information goes and why it's not being collected. So one of the issues that we were having in Maine years ago was that, you know, men were starting to complain that women were not receiving equal sentencing. Women were let off easy years ago. Um, so there was some piece of legislation that made it so that women were to receive equal sentencing to men. Well, what ended up happening was women started receiving longer sentences than men. You know, I got 
20 months for a first offense. That's, that's crazy to some, you know? Um, and that was for a drug offense. Not to go into my, like my personal trauma, but years ago, I had an ex-boyfriend beat my dog to death with his bare hands. And he got less time than I did for aggravated animal cruelty. That is not, that is not fair today, you know? Um, so anyways, yeah, women are now receiving longer sentences than men for sometimes the same conviction when it was actually meant to be equal. Um, but I do thank you for sharing that and kind of giving us that insight because, um, you know, sentencing should be equal um, across the board of whether that's race, sex, you know, whatever factors people are considering into that. KJ, is there something you wanted to add? I think just to offer a good summary, um, piecing together as much data as we can from the different but few studies that have been published is, so we do know, right, that the rate of women has grown up to over 800%. Um, and of individuals incarcerated, it is suggested that up to 10% of them are pregnant um, while incarcerated. And then again, piecing together other pieces and kind of keeping in mind like the bigger picture. And like you just mentioned, especially like intersections such as like race and class, um, that holds especially true for individuals in poverty. They um, experience higher incarceration rates, women who grew up in poverty experience higher incarceration rates, and then also Black women um, experience the highest incarceration rates. It's suggested that one in every 18 Black women um, will experience incarceration at some point in their life. And again, if we're thinking reproductive rights, we also know that Black women um, experience maternal mortality rates at five times um, higher on average. And again, that's non-incarcerated. And so when your reproductive rights and um, reproductive health is even more controlled than it already is in a non-carceral state, um, the conversation becomes extremely, extremely, extremely important to pay attention to, especially because in the United States, it's never been deemed unconstitutional like to provide um, sufficient prenatal care. And I mentioned that because correctional health care is a constitutional responsibility um, under the Eighth Amendment. Yeah, thank you for that summary. And, um, you know, before we get into the reproductive health care, I do want to state, um, you know, we are talking about women that are in the carceral system and going through corrections. And one thing that we do know is um, as over half or probably, probably maybe about 58 percent of incarcerated women um, have a child under the age of 18 which is why it is they already have a child or like KJ just said and um, explained to us are pregnant behind bars. And so it's so essential for us to talk about reproductive health care, what their rights are and why this is such an important thing. Um, I think before we go into and start talking about the needs, do you do one of you care to explain what it is that you mean by reproductive health care and what all that encompasses? So when we're thinking about reproductive health care in a really broad sense, we're just kind of thinking our sex stuff. So like all sort of sexual reproductive genitalia um, and the health needs that could coincide with that. So whether that be pregnancy, like we've been discussing so far, 
to things um, as simple as, you know, someone's menstrual cycle, um, PCOS, endometriosis, STI testing, um, birth control access. Um, Can I add education? Oh, yes, please. Look at education. Um, a lot of individuals don't always have a comprehensive understanding of their own reproductive health care needs. And so when you aren't educated on what to do or where to access, um, yeah, it just becomes a huge disparity because how do you advocate for yourself when you don't know what you need? And then you're in the system um, that is hyper-controlled and you have no legal access over your own health care. So reproductive health care really encompasses a lot of different things, like you said. Um, and so in this, we're going to be able to kind of walk through those things and give some information to the audience about uh, what these needs are um, and kind of what's happening, what we've seen happen or the experiences that we've shared. We've experiences that people have shared with us about what's happening. So size on the specific healthcare needs of women within the correctional system. So in my own experience, I had um, several, several issues uh, due to my pregnancy. Um, you know, just starting off in Kennebec County, not knowing I was pregnant, I was immediately detoxed off of my Suboxone because I wasn't tested for being pregnant. So being detoxed alone is extremely dangerous for a fetus. Um, two weeks into my incarceration, I got into a fight because somebody stole my phone time. Um, that is dangerous. I got thrown on my face by a, a security guard and cuffed and thrown into an elevator. Um, you know, all those things were my fault and I take full responsibility, but still not good for a baby right um and if the test had been done prior to me being in, in you know admitted into the jail it it would have been prevented um a couple of weeks later you know they taken i went into that jail with seven medications they allowed me to keep one ointment so among those medications were trazodone for sleeping, prazosin for PTSD, um, flexorol, which is a muscle relaxer, lidocaine ointment, which is also for muscle pain. Um, I don't remember what the other two were. Well, Wellbutrin, I don't know if I said that one. Um, Wellbutrin and one more. Anyway. Once they discovered I was pregnant, which I, I began morning sickness and I asked the guy on med cart to give me a pregnancy test one day. I took the pregnancy test and then all of a sudden I'm asked to go to intake. So I go to intake and I'm like, okay, why am I here? The, the, the CO is like, you don't know why you're here. Medical didn't come get you. I said, no, why am I here? Kelly, you're pregnant. You need to go to the hospital to see if your baby is okay. That's how I found out I was pregnant in intake at the Kennebec County Jail. Like a medical provider could not tell me. Are you kidding me? 
Um, so I went to the hospital. They confirmed my pregnancy. The baby was okay. Got sent back to the jail. A couple of weeks later, they put me back on Wellbutrin. Well, apparently Wellbutrin and Buspar are one letter apart on their generic name. So I got prescribed 160 milligrams of Buspar rather than 150 milligrams of Wellbutrin, which would have killed me and my baby because the maximum amount of abuse bar you can get is 60 if the guy on the med cart didn't catch it i don't know what would have happened um april 18th i woke up bleeding i hit the emergency room day the day button the oh my gosh mixing up my words uh i hit the emergency button in the day room and six officers came running. It was during lockdown. Nobody was supposed to be out their cell. I'm like, I'm bleeding. I need to go to the hospital right now. They brought me into the education room. Okay, prove it. You're the prove that you're bleeding. Okay, well, here, here you go. Okay, well, we're gonna take your intake. They made me sit on an intake bench for four hours. Um, I got admitted to the hospital later that day. Once the Ohio doctor I never met cleared me to go um two days later I was brought back to the jail and I was sentenced to prison they sent me to prison I got stuck in the pods for two weeks because they forgot about me being pregnant then I was in uh, the women's center at Maine's correctional center a month later I ended up with gestational diabetes the facility refused to treat for the gestational diabetes because gestational diabetics are supposed to be under 125. Regular diabetics are supposed to be under 150. So the, the prison did not consider me diabetic because I was within regular numbers, not pregnancy numbers. So gestational diabetic is intolerance to carbs. All you are fed in prison is carbs. They say special diet. Special diet means a cup of peanut butter and two packages of crackers. It doesn't mean any other healthy food, nothing a pregnant woman should be eating. I got threatened a write-up for walking up four sets of stairs. Um, geez, what else? I, I couldn't do any physical activity um, I was eligible to go to pre-release the entire time. They kept me up on the hill with all of the lifetimers um, because there was no 24-hour medical staff down at pre-release. The list goes on. You know, it, there were so many medical issues that I had that were not taken care of by the main Department of Corrections. So yeah, Kelly, I hear you talking a lot about the challenges that you experienced at being, you know, in the jail and then transitioning to the correctional facility itself and how you were kind of, your process kind of went for you being pregnant and finding out you were pregnant. I'm wondering, um, is there any information either one of y'all have on what is the, you know, that standard protocol for how they're supposed to address pregnancy um, kind of childbirth or even just that menstrual health that women encounter just throughout life? So from my own experience, they were operating by protocol. 
and that's why I had to wait on the bench for four hours. And that's why I had to, yeah, I, I was denied the gestational diabetes medication and I ended up on insulin. Um, there was actually a bill, LD 2085, that was introduced just as I was being released, um, an act to, an act to, an act to provide reproductive health care and education in all of Maine's correctional facilities. It was LD 2085, and it unfortunately ended up dying in the legislature due to COVID. So sort of scaling out from Kelly's story, this can be understood be as it totally depends where you're at, unfortunately. So, and what I mean by that is it's not going to only depend on where you're at facility-wise because all facilities are going to have their own internal policies that they operate by, as Kelly's story highlights. Um, but then again, at the, the county, uh, state, or federal level, they're also going to have different policies um, and legislation that they operate by. And so the quality of care and the continuity of care is really dependent on how not only correctional staff communicate within one facility, but how that care is being transferred when a resident is being transferred from a facility to a different facility. And this is even more complicated when we start to grapple that the correctional healthcare system is not the same system as um, the everyday healthcare system. I know Kelly mentioned a little bit about going to the hospital. Um, however, that is really only in special cases, right? Like she had to go confirm that she's pregnant they're going to try and do as much in-house as they possibly can. And this is because this healthcare systems are paid by the state. So, or paid by the county, paid by the federal government. Um, because of the U.S. having a constitutional obligation to provide healthcare to everyone that is in their, in their custody, including um, individuals that are incarcerated, they have to pay. Like they're the only population in the country that actually get free healthcare, if you will, um, with a few asterisks attached. Um, and so they're running by a budget. When they have to pay for everybody's healthcare out of pocket, they're only going to want to pay for what they want to pay for. And so it really comes down to how what they deem to be serious illness um, or serious injury. And so to make matters just a little bit more complicated, because we're always trying to save money, especially when we're on a budget, um, we contract out. So WellPath is the for-profit healthcare company. Um, it is a company specifically designed for incarcerated folk um, and other carceral type facilities. And they supply the healthcare, they are the prescribers, they are the the overseers. As Kelly mentioned, her prescriber was in Ohio, in Ohio um, and this is because they depend on a virtual system um, heavily to supply medical care. So the person deeming your serious illness or injury may not even be present in the room. Um, and so it's it's a tiered thing 
And that's what makes it really complicated because it's totally dependent on how everyone's individual policies, procedures, and budgets communicate with each other. And so if the jail will pay for it um, or the jail will allow it, it's will the medical company allow it? Will the med medical company you know, commit to that procedure? Um, if it's something like birth control, for instance, where you have a legal right to access while incarcerated, okay, well, maybe they won't pay for that IUD you want. Your only options are the depo shot or pills because that's what they can afford. Um, and so the quality of your care is extremely diminished because it is completely managed by hierarchical protocols like Kelly's story highlights um, and a for-profit model. You know, WellPath is a, a billion dollar company. So how do we revenue a billion dollars and simultaneously provide quality care? You can't. So I just thought of something else <clears throat> just real quick. Um, WellPath actually does their own blood work on each resident in the prison. Um, there was a time that they did their blood work on me and I was sent, I had actually just got back from medical appointment at the hospital from with my OBGYN and I was sent an hour later back to have an emergency C-section at six months. I was six months pregnant at the time uh, because they did their own blood work. They said my liver was failing and I needed to have an emergency C-section to save my baby. When I got to the triage unit, they told me that the jail, the prison medical staff read the blood work wrong and that the chemical I was testing high for was actually a chemical in baby's bones. And then I was absolutely fine and just needed to go back. How do you make a mistake like that? That was so much stress. I mean, I, I thought it, there's just been so many times throughout this whole experience where I thought my baby was dying. Like the correction system was trying to kill me and my child. I, I just can't even describe to you the, the mental and emotional turmoil I faced through this entire thing. However, I will give credit to some select few staff at their main department of corrections for trying to help me because there are some that do care. And it's definitely a complicated part of the reform um, or for those um, that care about abolition because a huge drive in um, you know, the anti-incarceration movement is to stop funding jails and prisons. And there's a lot of really, really good intent in that. However, um, again, thinking here in Maine, um, Franklin County Jail is a very small, is this very small jail that hasn't been updated in decades and they lack the space to host um, education. They, they lack the space to have a really full proper um, healthcare unit. Um, and it's because we're voting no on funding. And so I'm not here to say one way or the other on that. I just wanted to call out like the complicatedness in um, for those that are currently infected by incarceration um, in the reform movement, because if we can't, if right, like you just said, if we can't afford to give them the care we're, we're limiting by our budget and 
we're not giving money to those that are responsible for their care, um, it's sort of a double-edged sword for, again, that person that is directly impacted and involved in the system because um, they're stuck there. They're, they're dependent on what they can receive out of that facility. I will tell you that there is an organization in Maine called the Maine Prisoner Advocacy Coalition. And there is this wonderful lady, Leslie Manning, and she will preach to you up and down that people do not belong in cages. They do not belong in solitary and that the medical staff should definitely not be a, not a, a for-profit medical agency. We should not be having a for-profit medical agency treat our residents, inmates, prisoners, whatever you want to call them. We shouldn't be having that in this state. Because what's happening is it's, it forces criminalization as a prerequisite for care. Because when we see things like MAT, so Medicaid-assisted treatment, um, be paired with incarceration, um, or for many, because in healthcare is paid for in a lot of cases, like this could be your first chance to get a pap smear or a mammogram or whatever else the case may be beyond medication consistently, um, because you wouldn't be able to afford it. Otherwise you have to be a criminal in order to be cared for. And so it's creating like this very paradoxical, unhealthy relationships within and by communities. That's just not sustainable. Because, I mean, as your podcast has talked about um, in previous episodes and as, you know, continuous research shows, incarceration and having a criminal record severely impacts and or can impact someone's ability to just live and engage in a free life. Speaking of pap smears, you know, <clears throat> I was incarcerated for 13 months total. And I did not witness one person have a mammogram or a pap smear or any type of women's health care appointment. And I was incarcerated with over 140 women per facility. Uh, well, maybe not Kennebec. Kennebec was more like 40. So 40 at Kennebec and then 140 at the Women's Center and 140 at SMWRC. And I did not see one person have a woman's health care appointment. I was one of five pregnant women in the entire time I was incarcerated. That's a lot of pregnant women to be treated this way. And I know that of, you know, this one in five, I was one of four that were diagnosed with gestational diabetes. So I wasn't the only one experiencing this. It's just something that we really need to do better with. Yeah, I definitely agree. And kind of what I've heard overall is like, so some of the things that really considered, like that contribute to the challenges of, you know, getting that proper health care are some logistical things like funding. But also I'm hearing from you, Kelly, is just correctional staff or entities um, taking initiative to actually make sure those things are taken care of, because it seems like a lot of women, um, and maybe even including yourself, went, went went without these things being taken care of and the opportunity to be able to explore these options. 
again, just to sort of offer a good little summary um, to encapsulate everything we've been talking about. I think it's really important for people to know that pregnancy while incarceration is way more common um, than one may think. Um, and it's also really important to know that for women that are incarcerated, um, and especially women that are pregnant and incarcerated, you are denied your legal rights um, to abortion, depending on where you might be um, either sent to, let's say you're from an abortion legal state and you're sent to a non-abortion legal state, which is possible because uh, Maine, for instance, has no federal prisons. Um, or if it's because of poor care coordination um, and the lack of um, dedication, as Kelly has pointed out, within the staff member facilitating that care. They're often denied adequate food and support. And as we've just been talking about general health care, um, you are rejected from all sense of privacy. Um, you're going to have a CO in all of your medical appointments, even delivery often Unfortunately, even if law states that they can't be there, um, policy and practice are two different things, and it's very often for policies to be broken in these cases, unfortunately. Um, and what's really, 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 really sad is it's most common and most explicitly common actually to be denied support um, during childbirth. So like your family isn't invited to appointments, you, there's, they're not allowed in the delivery room. You may not even see them pick up your child. Like you may not be able to be present for that handoff. You might have to be sent back to your facility before then. Separation of newborns and mothers takes place um, anywhere between 24 to 72 hours. Um, so you, you're not with your child for very long. Um, and most, most states don't have any sort of program to support new mothers. Like only nine states that I can think of have um, like a, some sort of nursery program. Um, and even if a state has that, it's not necessarily accessible to, to all pregnant incarcerated folk. Um, there are eligibility requirements. And so it's way more common and way more complicated than we give time to. So I just have a couple of ending comments as well. Um, you know, I was not given the option to have an abortion. I was not given the, you know, the option or education around abortion or, you know, adoption. I, I wasn't given anything. I, my choice was to have this baby. Um, you know, the bill LD 2085 that ended up dying due to COVID but I will definitely hand it to the main department of corrections that they implemented internal policies shortly after that bill died. Um, and it's because I was able to talk to some of the higher ups like Randall Liberty, the commissioner and Ryan Thornell. And, you know, those people heard my story and things that I went through. Um, so they, they were able to, change the internal policies and I definitely think that we're moving in the right direction but like KJ said practice and policy are two different things you know that was another thing active labor is considered six centimeters dilated according to policy the COs are supposed to leave the room when the mother is in active labor and 
the CEO was in my room the entire time. I did not see my family. I was not even allowed to call my family to let them know I was in labor until I was in active labor. Um, there's just so many gaps, you know, and I think that the state of mean is really trying, but we still have so far to go. And Kelly, one thing I want to ask and KJ as well, um, you know, you've shared your story and kind of like your experiences in y'all's interactions uh, with people that have incarcerated women or previously incarcerated women. Have you seen these similar themes um, of some of the things that you're talking about today? I haven't met anybody with a story quite like my own. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like I said, there was five other pregnant women there that had gestational diabetes and they had to deal with some of the same issues surrounding that. But, you know, I, I was one of two women that actually gave birth in the prison. Um, the rest were released and gave birth at home. So they didn't have to deal with these things. So I don't, I, I, I would say, no, I haven't really been able to relate as much with other women. Um, and I haven't really seen a lot of incarcerated pregnant women since I've been incarcerated. And I, I do a lot of volunteering at SMWRC now, running the reentry group. So I think I would know. Um, my experience is slightly different than Kelly's. I would actually say, I, I same, like I, no one's story is quite like Kelly's. Everyone's story is very, very, very different. But there are a lot of shared themes between motherhood, parenting, reproductive health and rights um, and incarceration. So professionally, I provide reproductive and sexual health outreach in um, areas that are most commonly impacted by substance use um, or incarceration. So I have gone into jails. Um, I go into reentry facilities, um, recovery housing, and um, in addition to providing services, I just speak and I talk with with with, with people. Um, and regardless of what someone's story is, it's that there everyone has some sort of tie back to control. Um, and the lack of active listening by the state or by the county um, and the dehumanization that takes place um, because you just sort of become a number and you come sort of just become another statistic um, and really just sort of like another object to be managed. And so all of your lived experiences and anything that could be a key contributor to your identity is really it's put on the back burner, it's, it's devalued when you're incarcerated. And so, um, you know, we know from data, many women have never lived by themselves before incarceration, as you brought up, Vinkia, before. Um, many are mothers and incarceration is the first time they're separated from their children. Um, they lack the education or access to full autonomous choices as Kelly has pointed out. There's just this, there's constant lacks and there's constant gaps everywhere. And while no two 
may exactly overlap and be the same. I think that's almost more important to recognize because if you zoom out, you see how many holes in a fabric that is. And it's really just, it's hardly holding together anymore. Um, and so, yeah, it's, a, again, I just go back to saying it's, it's happening more often than we realize it's more complicated than we realize. And it's having consequences on our communities that are, um, extremely detrimental, um, in ways that we're not paying attention to. I'm glad you brought that up because that, that's something I didn't think about. I was separated from my nine-year-old son this entire time, you know, and a lot of other women were separated from their children. And, you know, when you look at TV, the stigma and the stereotype that they portray is so incredibly wrong. I have never been around a group of more supporting and loving and caring women in all of my life. I remember Christmas Day, everybody just sat around and talked about their kids and smiled and laughed and supported one another when we started to cry. And it was a beautiful day. Um, so I'm glad you brought that up because that was something I could relate to was being separated from my son. It was horrible. Yeah, thank you both for sharing that and kind of summarizing and giving your key points of what you think is, you know, important for our listeners to understand and really take away from this uh, conversation that we're having today. Um, I want to say thank you both of you for joining us today and, you know, getting us started on this mini series that we're having and having these critical conversations. Um, I think one thing I'd like to also add, and just for the audience, is that as we continue to go through this series, um, just remember um, that awareness and action can drive very much meaningful change and um, that when it comes to women who are involved in the legal system, we are seeing an exponential growth and um, and we're seeing a neglect of needs when they enter these systems, especially as it pertains to their health care. Um, so I really thank you all for listening to us today. And one thing that I want to encourage all of our listeners to do is um, research, go out and research, get on Google or whatever it is, your sources that you use, just make sure they're valid sources um, and do your own research on women's correctional health care. See what information it is that you find um, and come back to us on our Instagram page and talk to us and, you know, tell us what you've learned, uh, share with us new information. There's always new things that we can learn as well, as I know we didn't get to, we don't get to talk about everything in this 45 to 50 minutes that we have here. Um, so come back and share with us and you can do that on our Instagram page at more life, the reentry podcast. And if you want to learn more about the unborn pregnancy prisoner project, you can also follow them on Instagram and YouTube at the unborn pregnancy prisoner project. Um, but Kelly and KJ, I do want to say thank you. And thank you both for coming on today. Thank you. I'm looking forward to continuing this conversation. As well, this is something that I am extremely passionate about, and I'm so ecstatic that KJ found me for her college project, and we've been able to create this 
this beautiful organization and I'm excited to see what else we can do. Well, you've heard it there. Um, thank you all for tuning in with us today. And like I said, thank you both. Looking forward to y'all listening to our next episode. So stay tuned in for next week. Bye.